2,000 years ago, a sect of a sect under Greek influence and Roman governmental control changed the day that they got together a little bit like this. Um, And they started worshiping on Sunday instead of Saturday. And that story is a fascinating story. I don't know if you've ever read the book of Acts, but perhaps the most interesting part of the start of the early church was how incredibly imperfect it was. But what's more interesting than that is that the church continued to grow and to thrive as men and women continued to believe and to trust that Jesus of Nazareth was, in fact, who he said he was. As our new members just spoke of, Son of God, Savior of sinners, hope. So what we're going to do over the, the, the course of the summer is look at the book of Acts. And we're not going to try and cover the whole book. Some of you like when I go through a book quickly and don't cover everything because then it feels catharsis like we got something done. Others of you are real studiers of Scripture and you don't like it. We're going to go through this verse by verse. And this is very long. So it's probably going to take us this summer and next summer and maybe even the summer after that to go through the story of the early church. A couple of years ago, when I was first hired at the barn, I decided I would do vision series in the fall. And um, the first year that I was here, we did one called Why Gather? Why do we even do this? The church is not uh, the building. The church is anywhere that men and women who profess that Jesus is Lord gather. So we called it Why Gather? And I uh, had a new idea. I was going to ask this abstract artist to paint something based on the series. And because of my... (laughs) Lack of organizational skills. Uh, it didn't happen until uh, after the series was over, but I've had the painting in my office ever since. Unbeknownst to me at the time, uh, Kira Schoenhardt, who painted it, named the painting that was about why churches exist. She called it Asylum. And I love that title. Because if the gospel is true, then we desperately need a place that is a safe harbor in a world of chaos and sin and death. And at the same time, Christians profess that their need for God is entire. So what we look like to the outside world is a group of crazy people. (laughs) And that's okay. Because we profess that we have no hope in salvation without Jesus, which means we're saying indirectly, I am an incredibly needy person. And so I love the title of her painting, Asylum, and about, I'm going to say 12 of you like that I like abstract art, and that's okay that the rest of you don't. But here's the painting that she painted a couple of years ago in honor of why I gather And it's called Asylum, and I'm going to use it for the the story of the early church because while there are glorious moments in the story of the beginning of the church of followers of Christ, it is a messy endeavor, which makes me think maybe I could participate too. Some people like to quote different sections of Acts and talk about the purity of the early church. The early church was no more pure than we are. 
They might have been more passionate because they, most of them, especially in this chapter, actually saw the risen Christ, interacted with him, talked with him. About 120 of them were there, watched him float away. <laughs> so they were pretty passionate. But they argued. And they had trouble figuring things out. And friendships got broken. And then they would come back together and figure out how to do unity in church family. So if you have your Bible, we're looking at Acts chapter 1. Verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, the first book is the Gospel of Luke. This is the second book. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. To them he presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs, according to them, appearing to them 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, so that's Luke's intro, and now he's going to start telling the story of the first followers of Christ. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? Did they answer? Well, we're looking up because a man just floated away who was our friend. What do you mean, why are we looking up? I think the Bible's very funny. Gosh, let's just put that down here. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers in those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. And this is one of the many inside reasons that people think, because Luke doesn't say, I, Luke, write Acts. But then he includes details like this, so like a doctor, telling us a little more than we wanted to know, just to prepare you. So weird part of the Bible. Now this man bought a field with a reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. 
For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph, called Barsabbas, who is also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them. Interesting way of deciding. Our elders don't do that, by the way, when we need to make decisions. Our trustees, our de- that's not how we make decisions. I just need you to know. Like, we believe in the Bible that's authoritative, and this is not how we make decisions. You need to know that. We don't cast lots anymore. You, Lord, know the hearts of all. Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered among the 11 apostles. So the journalist physician, Luke, there are a lot of indicators that he wrote it when, he call, when they say we later in the book of Acts, the way that the gospel of Luke is similar in style. The journalist physician uh, begins by talking about the kingdom. Did you notice that little shift? The disciple said, at this time, will you restore the kingdom to Israel? But what does Luke call it? The kingdom of God. He's telling about the men and women who knew about the kingdom of God, living that out as they waited for Jesus to return. One of the most interesting parts of Christianity is a constant tension between the already and the not yet. So the already is the kingdom of God that you and I experience, which is the the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the joy of trusting him, and peace of the Holy Spirit. But the not yet is he has not come back and made all things new. And there's a little bit of an indicator of that because the disciples are like, all right, Jesus, we want our country back. The Greek influence is kind of okay. We want the Romans gone. We want our land and our country back. And Luke is gently indicating, no, it's going to be this new kingdom for a while. And I'm quoting Romans chapter 14, verse 17, where Paul describes that kingdom as one of righteousness, where you and I learn to live rightly because the righteousness of Christ is given to us through the work that he did and faith in him. We're given joy, which is not happy all the time, but contentment that God is who he says he is and that we can trust him. And peace, which does not always feel like peace because the world is still full of sin and death, and yet we have it the peace of Christ which transcends all understanding. Would you pray with me? Lord, would you help us as we watch the early church begin? Would you help us to follow you, to learn to pray as they prayed, to learn to seek unity as they did through arguing and listening to one another? And would you grow us up, Lord, as lovers of you and neighbor. Amen. So the journalist physician writes of the ascension. Did you notice that the disciples are asking Jesus a really direct question? I love this about scripture. So they said, okay, Jesus, will you now restore the kingdom to Israel? And what does he say? It's not for you to know the times and the seasons 
Uh, what kind of answer is that, by the way? What's he actually saying? No. I love this. This happens throughout Scripture. There's this, a, a point in the Gospels when the disciples say, Lord, increase our faith. And he says, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, and we talk a lot about the mountain and what that means and what it means to have that faith. We miss the fact that they asked a pretty simple question, and Jesus, love incarnate, gently said, no, not as much what you need as what I am going to offer you. So the disciples want Israel back. They want all their land back. And Jesus says, nope, but I am going to leave you my kingdom, which is in your heart a trusting relationship with me where you receive my righteousness, joy, and peace. <laughs> I love that these two men, we assume they're angels, but the text doesn't even say, ask them, why are you looking up? Well, we're looking up because we knew this carpenter. And he said he was God, which we thought was interesting. And then he was crucified, which made us all very sad. Then he rose from the dead, which we thought was so exciting. Then he floated away, and a cloud covered him. That's why we're gazing up into heaven. But what's happening is, Jesus is introducing the tension that Christians live with. That we have the good news that a trusting relationship with Jesus Christ is ours because of the work that he did, and yet he has not come back. And so we still live in the midst of disorientation, sin, death. <laughs> I love that Luke not only writes about the ascension of Jesus, but he spends a lot of time. The largest section of this passage is figuring out who's going to replace Judas. And the largest section of the section figuring out who's going to replace Judas is about choosing between these two men that we almost never hear about again in Scripture. Not to my knowledge, anyway. Why does Luke include all these details? This is the kind of thing that if you are reading the Bible and you're in Acts chapter 1, might lead you to, to check out a little bit. Can I just point out that the reason it's interesting that Barsabbas, whose name was actually Joseph, who's, but they called him Justice, and they don't even pick him. Why does Luke include that detail? Because he knew that guy. And because that was the guy's name. And that was the guy's story. And here's the thing that's so interesting about the book of Acts that I don't want you to miss if you choose to read it. There are hundreds of details like this. And many of them are still historically verifiable. Last week I preached in Brooklyn. We did a, a pulpit swap so that my friend who's planting a church could come stay in our retreat center. And I preached on Acts chapter 26 for him. And there are all these historical figures King Herod Agrippa, the proconsul Festus, the proconsul Felix, Agrippa's sister, sort of wife, Bernice. Yes, it was weird in the Bible also. Um, all of those historical figures, there are archaeological like walls that you can go see that have their names written into them. And not only that, Luke got their titles right. So you're like, I don't care who was a proconsul 2,000 years ago. That's fine except that we can verify that these stories are true through these little details that Luke tells us. I'm reading this and I'm like, why is he telling me that his name's Joseph, they called him Barsabbas, but they also kind of called him Justice. Then they didn't even pick him because that's how it happened. 
because that guy was one of the, and apparently there were 120-ish people who followed Jesus all the time and they could have chosen one of the 120 and they knew that two of them were way better than the other 118, but they weren't quite sure what to do about those two. So they prayed and then they cast lots, which is a weird way to make a decision, right? And the reason I'm pointing out that that's a weird way to make a decision is because it's weird and because that's how they chose to do it. Just like us, when we have to make a decision, we don't always have as much time, you know? They couldn't do personality profile tests and compare them to the other disciples and figure out who would be the best fit, you know? You're like, that's kind of interesting. And maybe this is some interesting Bible trivia. Like, who are the two guys chosen to replace Jesus? Was Matthias or Barsabbas? What were Barsabbas' nicknames? I mean, you could be really good at Bible trivia if you know that stuff. But the reason that it's important is not because it's interesting Bible trivia, but because that was his name. And Luke includes those details, and many of the details he includes can still be verified today. Now, if you're not a follower of Christ and you wonder about the supernatural, I can't prove to you the miracles that happened, but I can tell you that chapter by chapter by chapter in his description of governments and people, travelogues and cities, the way the Roman government worked, the way the Roman government interacted with the Jewish occupied territory is dead on accurate. The faith that many of us in this room proclaim is not just a faith. It is also a faith that can be uh, referenced historically and evidentially, which reminds us that the beginning reason to believe the gospel is not just because of the joy and the peace, but because it's true. And so we read this story and we're like, why do I need to know that Luke or that Judas killed himself and apparently his body burst. I'm sorry, that's gross. Why do I need to know that? Maybe I don't, but it is a gentle reminder that this happened. And everybody knew about it, by the way. Like people's Twitter feeds would pop up. Oh, were you in the field of blood this week? I was, yeah, that's gross down there still. <laughs> I'm kidding, they didn't have Twitter, but that's, what, that's Bible language for the people were still talking about the field. To this day, it's called the field Akodama, right? That's Bible language for we're still talking about it, which is a reminder to you and I that these things happen. It's also a reminder to you and I that the early church was an imperfect place. We need a new leader. How do we figure that out? Prayer and gambling. <laughs> I mean, kind of, right? Right? I mean, you were kind of wondering, right? Like there's a, there's a, they quote the Old Testament in their decision to do this, but it's, a, it's not clear that they were exactly supposed to cast lots. But they just had to make a decision. This church is the same. We don't, we don't pray and then gamble to figure out decisions. But we do pray, and then in limited time, we do the best we can. Elders watch over prayer and ministry of the word, administration of the sacraments. Deacons do sympathy and service within the body of Christ. Our trustees take care of our largest tool of evangelism and discipleship property here. It is imperfect. We do not always get along perfectly. Just like in Acts chapters 1 and 2 and 6 and 12 and 21 and 22 and 28 and all the other chapters in between. 
And the reason that the imperfect church is not good news is good news. The reason that it's good news that the early church was imperfect is not just because it reminds us that it's okay that we're imperfect. It's because it kept growing and growing and growing. And it's not because the disciples were all such compelling speakers. They're pretty good speakers. There are 32 speeches in the book of Acts. Some of the most important words in all of Scripture are those who saw Jesus rise from the dead and then started talking about it, whether it was to one rule ruler, to a bunch of Greek skeptics in Acts chapter 16, in Acts chapter 2, it's to a bunch of people that believed in God but didn't yet know about Jesus Christ. Speeches are so important. The reason it's good news is because in spite of its imperfections, in spite of our imperfections, the church continues to grow because the good news is good. It's good news for our hearts, and it's true. And as men and women realize that their need is entire, that they need an asylum because their need is that big, the church grows. If you read the book of Acts, it's a disorienting read because the church um, is marked by, so someone will preach the gospel, and people will respond, and then they'll be persecuted, and then they'll start infighting, and then they'll continue to grow because God desires all his people to be saved. And it happens imperfectly because Jesus left and he said, no, no, you guys take care of it. I'll be back later. I'll float back down, just like I floated up, paraphrasing. But for now, you take care of it. And the journalist physician writes about the ascension of Christ, the disciples 2.0, showing that the early church is imperfect like we are, and expectation is thick this imperfect group of women and men who believe that Jesus rose from the dead and that's their hope, but they're still waiting. And some of what they're waiting for is the promise of the Holy Spirit that Jesus described and that we'll see in Acts chapter two. And some of their waiting is like our waiting, where we believe that Jesus is our hope and our faith, but we're waiting for him to make all things new. And in the meantime, What we need to not do is wait to trust him. We need to not wait to forgive. We need to not wait to be generous. And you're like, what are you talking about? What does this have to do with Acts chapter one? Acts chapter one is introducing an idea that is throughout the scripture, which is Jesus is coming back very soon. And in the meantime, don't wait to trust him with your heart and with your decisions. The beginning of this idea is in Acts chapter one. That we have all this good news, but he hasn't come back yet. But he's going to come back really soon. And we're like, it's 2017. We know he's not going to come back really soon. No, we don't know that. And the reason the Bible says this over and over and over and over and over again is you and I desperately need faith in Jesus and to not wait to trust him. Don't wait to forgive I'll just, I'll just stick with that one for a second. Today might be a really important day for some of us to remember this. Do not wait to forgive. Even as they're waiting on the Holy Spirit, as all Christians wait for Jesus to return, we don't wait to follow him. Because what happens? It hurts us. One of the hardest teachings of Scripture, in my opinion, is to forgive. And the reason is because when you choose to not desire pain for someone else, which is forgiveness, that's, that's, that's almost all that forgiveness is. 
It's not reconciliation of relationship. When we choose to not desire pain for that other person, we have to absorb what they did to us. But the alternative is the internal sickness of unforgiveness. And so as we watch the early church waiting for the Holy Spirit, and then after next chapter, we watch them thinking Jesus is going to come back really soon, what we learn from that and what the New Testament repeats and repeats and repeats and repeats is don't wait. If you're considering faith in Jesus Christ, don't wait to put your faith in him. Because what you're waiting on is the righteousness of Christ given to you that reconciles you to the Father. What you're waiting on is experiencing joy, the consistent contentment of a Christian, knowing that God is who he says he is, that he loves you and likes you. And because of Jesus, you're fully restored to him. What you're waiting on is the peace of the Holy Spirit in your heart, assuring you and me that we are his and he is ours forever. Those of you that are already followers of Christ, don't wait on the commands of scripture, commands of purity, commands of forgiveness, commands of generosity, because what we're waiting on is a more full life and real freedom. One of my favorite things about the book of Acts is the very, very imperfect way that it ends. It seems like it's going to end really climactically with Paul before Caesar. And we have no idea if he ever got to be with Caesar. And you know why? Because you and I are called into this same story to learn to enjoy what was purchased on the cross of Jesus and to learn to share it. to learn to enjoy the kingdom and to learn to share it. I love the details of this book. I love the story of the early church. I love their imperfection. And I love that the story doesn't end because you and I are drawn into that. You believe that? That God would draw us into his story? I have trouble with that. I was repenting to my wife this morning, reminded of how imperfect of a human being I am. And I come back to Acts, and I'm drawn into the story of God to learn to enjoy his kingdom and to share it. I hope that sounds like good news to you. If it doesn't, it means I didn't explain it very well because it's such good news. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for being so gentle with us when we ask for things that are not as good as that what you offer. The disciples asked that you would restore the kingdom of Israel. You gently told them no, but that you're going to give them something better. And it's the same thing that you're giving to us, followers of you, righteousness, joy, and peace. We thank you for the imperfection of the early church 
and the imperfection of this church because it reminds us that you are perfect and good. In the midst of that, would you help us get better at loving you and loving one another? Father, as we sing, would you bless us with a sense of your Holy Spirit, which is here, which will never leave us or forsake us, which will never quit on us. Father, for the many, many men and women who are longtime followers of you, would you assure their hearts that you love them and that you like them, that you're indeed a good father to them. For those that are considering your good news, Lord, would it be clear to their minds and hearts that it is good news and would your Holy Spirit draw them to you? Amen.